السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي ربنا زدنا علما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد With regards to the hadith that we learned about halawatul iman, the sweetness of faith, and the second sign is that a person loves another only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. With regards to that, somebody shared a reflection. They said, I was reflecting in the work of deen done during the Prophet ﷺ's time, Umar anhu and Abu Bakr anhu, that they would also get into conflicts and sometimes even say things which the other might not like. And get offended by. Do you remember any incident where somebody said something, especially Umar and Abu Bakr and they did not like it? Any incident? That once a group of people had come to the Prophet ﷺ, a delegation had come and people were giving their suggestions as to who should be appointed their leader. So Umar anhu, Abu Bakr anhu, they were giving their suggestions but they both had different suggestions. So one of them said to the other that you said this only to contradict me. And they began arguing to the point that the voices raised up. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses that, لَا تَرْفَعُوا أَصْوَاتَكُمْ فَوْقَ صَوْتِ النَّبِي So we see that there were times when they got into conflict as well. Isn't it so? And perhaps they had an argument as well in which one said something to the other which he did not like. But that did not stop them from loving each other for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. None of them tried to overthrow the other or say to the Prophet ﷺ that I cannot work for the deen if so and so is also working here. Umar never said that that's it, I give up. This is not fair, Abu Bakr is always ahead of me. I cannot tolerate anymore. You know, if he's here, I'm not here. No, he never said that. They realized that their difference of opinion or even sometimes hurtful words from another fellow Muslim is just a test. And those who can sincerely look at the bigger picture of getting salvation the hereafter will overlook such shortcoming in their fellow Muslims. And that means that they love others for the sake of Allah and that they have truly tasted the sweetness of Iman. So this is something that we all need to improve on, that overlook the faults of the other people for the sake of who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the sake of the deen. Because as human beings, it's only natural to have conflicts, to end up in differences of opinion. But we should not get lost in them and we should not make it an ego problem. But rather, look at the bigger picture always. Let's continue. Bab, Alamatul Imani, Hubbul Ansar. Chapter, Loving the Ansar is a sign of Iman. Alama. What is Alama? Sign, indication. So what is the indication of Iman in a person? What is it that shows that a person has Iman? Hubbul Ansar. Love for the Ansar. If a person has love for the Ansar, that means that that person has Iman. حدثنا أبو الوليد قال حدثنا شعبة قال أخبرني عبد الله بن عبد الله بن جبر قال سمعت أنسا عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال آية الإيمان حب الأنصار وآية النفاق بغض الأنصار Ayatul Iman, the sign of Iman is Hubbul Ansar, love for the Ansar. 
النفاق and the sign of nifaq hypocrisy is bughdul ansar hating the ansar disliking the ansar we see here that iman has certain signs and nifaq also has certain signs from a hadith we learned that there are three signs of a hypocrite and you all are familiar with that hadith and over here we learn of other signs of hypocrisy and we also learn of the sign of iman what does this show that whatever is on the inside will also affect the outside or one part of the heart will affect the other part as well for example if a person is sick if a person is unwell then what's going to happen his body is going to have a fever isn't it so what the problem on the inside is going to become apparent on the outside and one problem will affect the other as well so we see that hubbul ansar on the outside is what this is a sign of iman if there is iman on the inside it will result in love for the ansar which is in the heart but which will also be obvious by a person's words and we see that in the previous hadith we learned that loving others for the sake of allah loving others for the sake of allah for no other benefit for the sake of allah this is an indication that a person has tasted the sweetness of iman and loving the ansar is also part of loving others for whose sake for the sake of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because if you think about it the ansar we haven't seen them we haven't met them we cannot have any business with them we cannot gain any material benefit from them we cannot get any physical benefit from them so why would a person love the ansar for the sake of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so when he loves them for the sake of allah it means that he has iman Now the question is who are the ansar the ansar as we know are those people who were at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who supported him welcomed him in medina especially the tribes of aws and khazraj and they are the ones who supported the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to the point that they even preferred him and his companions over themselves at many occasions they are the ones who offered their lives their wealth their homes everything for the sake of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala But remember that the ansar are not limited to those ansar. The ansar if you look at the meaning ansar is a plural of nasir and who is he the one who helps the one who supports and who are the ansar those who help those who support the messenger the cause of the deen the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they are all of the ansar whether they were at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam before the hijrah or after the hijrah or they were of the communities who came before the muslim ummah for example those people who believed in isa alayhi salam and supported him who are they hawariyun and what did they say nahnu ansarullah we are the ansarullah so ansar we can understand that there are two types of ansar first of all those who have been specifically mentioned as the ansar and who are they the companions of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam especially those from medina And secondly ansar includes all those people who have the characteristics of ansarullah whether they were of the people of the past meaning before the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam or at his time or afterwards because what is common between all of the ansar those who help the deen of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so loving them is a part of iman is an evidence of iman because when a person loves them in reality who does he actually love what does he actually love the deen of allah why does he love them because they are the ones who are supporting the deen so in reality he has love for the deen of allah he has love for 
Allah. So when a person has love for Allah, for the people of the deen, for the deen, that is an evidence that he has iman. We also learn from another hadith, which is in Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet ﷺ said, that a man who believes in Allah and the last day does not hate the Ansar. A man who believes in Allah and the last day does not hate the Ansar. In another hadith, which is also recorded in Sahih Muslim, Ali who said that the Prophet ﷺ said to the Ansar, none loves you but a believer, and none hates you except a hypocrite. None loves you except a who? A believer. And none hates you except a hypocrite. So the one who loves the Ansar, he has Iman. And the one who hates the Ansar, then he has Nifaq. And what does it mean by hating the Ansar? Hating the religion of Allah. Because what did the Ansar do? They supported their religion. That's the only thing that we know about them. That's the only thing that is great about them. That is why they are known as the Ansar. Because they helped the deen of Allah. So if a person hates them, what does he hate in reality? Helping the deen of Allah, meaning the deen. So that is a sign of hypocrisy. Anything you'd like to say before we continue? What have you learned? In the general sense, the Ansar refers to all those people who help support the deen of Allah. Whether it is those who are spreading knowledge or those who are helping the deen in any way. Because we have been told, Kunu Ansarullah, right? We have been told to become the Ansarullah. So whoever goes forth to help the deen of Allah, he is of them. That if loving the Ansar is a sign of Iman, then how important it is to be of the Ansarullah. That it happens these days that when a person goes forth in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are those who support him and there are those who oppose him. Those who support him, who are they? Why would they support him? Because of their iman. And that is a sign of iman. And those who oppose him for his helping the deen, why would he oppose him? For the weakness of his faith, for his hypocrisy. So that is an indication of hypocrisy. So sign of iman is helping those people, loving those people who are in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالَّذِينَ تَبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانِ Those who follow the muhajirin and the ansar. الَّذِينَ تَبَعُوهُمْ So it's not just limited to them, but it's also after them. We learned earlier that iman has many different branches. This is also a branch of iman. That your love also becomes for the sake of Allah, and it is for those who whom Allah loves. When a person is strong in his love for Allah, his messenger, then definitely he will also love those people who obey Allah. It will not just be limited to Allah and His Messenger, but that love, that circle of love will expand. He will also love other people. Like we make dua that Allahumma inni asaluka hubbaka wa hubba man yuhibbuka wa hubba amala alladhi yuqarribuni ila hubbik. So then a person begins to love people and actions. So it begins from love for Allah. That is a foundation. If that is strong, then that circle will expand. How can a person love the Ansar? We know that it's an indication of Iman, but how can you love the Ansar? A person loves the Ansar, and how is that visible? That How is that obvious that he will do what the Ansar did? He will follow their footsteps. He will do what they did. Because that is what is meant by loving them. Loving them does not just mean making claims that, yeah, I love so-and-so companion, I love so-and-so sahabiya, because look at the way that they helped the deen. We are not just required to appreciate their efforts, we're also supposed to follow their ways. That is what is meant by loving them. So when a person will follow their ways, that means he loves them. What else? Defending them. Knowing them. Because when you love someone, do you not talk about them? 
When you love someone, don't you talk about them? You do. Don't you think about them? You do. Don't you keep thinking in your mind about what they did, what they said? Yes, you do. So how can you think about the Ansar, reflect on their actions, follow them if you don't know them? Knowing the Ansar is the key to loving the Ansar. Babun. Bab has been said, but a heading has not been given. Is that what you have as well? Because earlier we read Babun, for example, Alamatul Imani Hubbul Ansar. But over here there is no chapter heading that has been given. Chapter title, yani Bab has been given, but a specific chapter heading has not been given. We learned that Imam Bukhari, when he wrote his book, what did he first do? He recorded all of the ahadith. And then afterwards, what did he do? He gave chapter headings, chapter titles, right? He divided the ahadith according to subject, according to what he was trying to prove by those ahadith. So he organized the matter. Now, the chapters or the headings that he gave, he didn't just number them, but he basically gave them titles as well. He gave them a description as well. Why? Because that was the point that he was proving. That was the point that he was making. For some chapter titles, what did he do? He used a part of the hadith. Okay? He used a part of the hadith, like we have been learning. And for some, he just left them blank. Why did he leave them blank? Because it's possible he did not find one title suitable for it. Why is that so? Because it's possible that there are so many things that you can that you can derive from that hadith. There are multiple benefits that Imam Bukhari is trying to prove in the context over here. And secondly, it's also possible that there is a relationship between the hadith that is mentioned afterwards and the chapter title that was given previously. So basically, the hadith that he's mentioning now has a relationship with what? With the chapter heading that was given previously. And what was that chapter heading? Alamatul Imani Hubul Ansar. So this following hadith is also related to that. So what are the two reasons? First of all, that there are multiple points that we can learn that he's trying to prove over here. So he didn't just write one. And secondly, that it has to do with the previous chapter heading. So let's look at the hadith. حدثنا أبو اليماني قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال أخبرني أبو إدريس عائد الله بن عبد الله أن عبادة بن الصامت رضي الله عنه وكان شهد بدرا I'll just translate as we go along قال أخبرني أبو إدريس He said Abu Idris informed me And who is Abu Idris? عائد الله is his name And Ibn Abdullah And he's a tabi'i and he narrated from who? That Anna Ubada ibn Samit. That Ubada ibn Samit, who was a companion, radiallahu anhu. And this companion, who was he? Wakana Shahida. And he was present at Badran, at the Battle of Badr. Wahua, and he was Ahadu, one of An-Nuqaba'i. One of the Nuqaba. Nuqaba is the plural of Naqib. Remember, we have learned this word earlier as well. That for Bani Israel, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appointed 12 nuqaba. So, who is the naqib? A leader over his people. So, you can say in a way a representative. Someone who is heading, who is leading a group of people. So, he was one of the nuqaba when Laylat al-Aqaba, at the night of al-Aqaba. What is this night of al-Aqaba? The night when the Aqaba pledge was taken by the companions, the first there was a first pledge and there was a second pledge before the hijrah. You all know that when it was 
clear to the Prophet ﷺ that he was not going to remain in Mecca for a long time. And there was also hints of hijrah. There were companions who came from Medina and who embraced Islam, especially when they had come for Hajj. They embraced Islam and they also pledged allegiance to who? The Prophet ﷺ. And first time it was at the first Aqaba pledge and it was followed by the next Aqaba pledge, soon after which the Prophet ﷺ migrated. So over here we see that وَهُوَ أَحَدُ النُّقَبَاءِ لَيْلَةَ الْعَقَبَ He was one of the people who was heading the Sahaba, the people from Medina. And this was at the night of Aqaba pledge. So Ubadah ibn Samit, who is he then? Ansari or Muhajir? Ansari. He narrated that أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَ That the Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم said, When did he say? وَحَوْلَهُ While around him, حَوْلَهُ While around him, were who? عِصَابَةٌ A group. Do you remember the word عُصْبَةٌ وَنَحْنُ عُصْبَةٌ Surah Yusuf? عِصَابَةٌ is used for a group of people who are numbered between 10 and 40. So he said, while there was a group of min ashabihi, of his companions around him. So he said, while a group of his companions were around him, and what did he say? That bayiruni, bayiruni, all of you pledge allegiance to me. Ala upon Allah tushriku billahi shay'a, that you will not associate with Allah anything. This is the first thing that you will pledge to. Secondly, وَلَا تَسْرِقُوا And that you will not steal. وَلَا تَزْنُوا And that you will not commit zina. وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ And that you will not kill your children. وَلَا تَأْتُوا بِبُهْتَانٍ And that you will not come with a slander. تَفْتَرُونَهُ That you will fabricate بَيْنَ أَيْدِيكُمْ وَأَرْجُلِكُمْ Between your hands and feet. Meaning you will not accuse someone. وَلَا تَعْصُوا and that you will not disobey fi ma'roofin in the matters of ma'roof in matters that are good. Faman so whoever wafa minkum whoever fulfills this pledge among you, fa ajruhu Allah, then his reward is upon Allah, meaning Allah will reward him for that. Waman and whoever asaba min zalika shay'an asaba he reached, meaning he committed. مِنْ ذَلِكَ from that شيء and anything meaning whoever commits one of these things which things the things that the Prophet ﷺ forbade them from doing anything فَعُوْقِبَ then he will be punished عُوْقِبَ from عِقَاب he will be punished فِي الدُّنْيَا in the world فَهُوَ then it meaning that punishment that عِقَاب will be كَفَارَةٌ an expiation لَهُ for him so whoever commits one of these prohibitions then what will happen he will be punished for it in this world. And that punishment will be an expiation for him. Meaning he will not be punished for that in the hereafter. The punishment in this world will clean him of his sin. وَمَنْ أَصَابَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ شَيْئًا And whoever commits anything from these, ثُمَّ then سَتَرَهُ اللَّهُ Allah concealed him. Whoever commits one of these sins, but then Allah conceals his sin. فَهُوَ Then he is إِلَى Allah to Allah. Meaning his matter is with who? Allah. إِن شَاءَ If he wills, meaning if Allah wills, عَفَى عَنْهُ He will pardon him. وَإِن شَاءَ And if he wills, عَاقَبَهُ He will punish him. Meaning it's up to Allah. His matter is with Allah then. So he will forgive him or he will punish him where? In this dunya and basically, mainly in the akhirah. فَبَايَعْنَاهُ Ubaid ibn Samit, he said that فَبَايَعْنَاهُ So we pledged allegiance to him 
ala dhalika upon that. In this hadith we see that Imam Bukhari is quoting that incident from where the story of the Ansar began. And it was on Laylatul Aqaba. And we see that the Ansar, they promised not to do certain things, which required them to do some other things. So basically, they pledged allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ of what? Obedience. Doing certain things, not doing certain things. And we see that Iman means doing certain things and staying away from other things. And we see that Mubaya'ah is mentioned over here, the bay'ah that took place between the companions and the Prophet ﷺ. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, Bay'uni and Bay'uni, Fa'iluni. This is from Mufa'ala, right? Mubaya'ah. Mubaya'ah literally means Musafaha. What does that mean? To shake hands. And it's from the word Ba'ah. And Ba'ah means Dhira'ah, one's forearm. When you shake hands with someone, you have to extend out your hand to them. Isn't it so? And when the Arabs, they used to pledge allegiance, how would they do that? By extending out their hand. We learn in Surah Fath, Ayah 10, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُبَايِعُونَكَ إِنَّمَا يُبَايِعُونَ اللَّهَ يَدُ اللَّهِ فَوْقَ أَيْدِيهِمْ What does that mean? That when people pledge allegiance, their hands are involved. So this is why the word mubayar is used for pledging allegiance. Why? Because the hand is involved in that. Now this pledge that is mentioned over here, the Prophet ﷺ took from all those people who believed. And this means that he took this pledge from men as well as women. He took this pledge from those who embraced Islam even before the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina. So the Ansar who came to him then. And then he also took the same pledge from who? From the women who migrated much later after the Sulh Hudaybiyah. Do you remember? Remember that? It's mentioned in Surah Al-Mumtahina, ayah number 12. And the ayah is very similar to the wording of this hadith. Ya ayyuhan nabiyu, idha jaaka al-mu'minatu, yubayi'unaka, ala alla yushrikna billahi shay'a, wala yasriqna, wala yaznina, wala yaqtulna awladahunna, wala ya'tina bibuhtanin yaftarinahu bayna aydihinna wa arjulihinna, wala ya'asinaka fi ma'roof. Fabayi'unna wa staghfir lahunna Allah, inna Allah ghafurur rahim. So we see that the conditions are the same. And this is why this Pledge of Allegiance has come to be known as Bay'atun Nisa'a. Why Bay'atun Nisa'a? Because it was mentioned in the Qur'an in the context of women. But remember that it's not limited to the women. There were people who pledged allegiance at the time of Laylatul Aqaba. There were those who pledged allegiance afterwards. And there were those who did it much afterwards as well. And in this pledge, what is it that they pledged allegiance to? What, what is it that they said that they would do or they would not do? That first of all, you will not do shirk. Because that is the foundation of iman. Secondly, that you shall not steal. Thirdly, that you shall not commit zina. Fourthly, that you shall not kill your children. And fifth, that you shall not accuse an innocent person. And then, that you shall not disobey in the matter of good. Hmm? Now, with regards to obedience, the Prophet ﷺ said that you will not disobey me. وَلَا تَعْصُوا فِي معروف, That you will not disobey with regards to ma'roof. Notice it hasn't been said, لَا تَعْصُونِ that you will not disobey me. Why? Because we are to obey everyone who commands us to do ma'roof. Whether it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or it comes from the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or it comes from ulil amr. So, this is general. 
And this is a part of Iman. Obedience in matters of ma'roof. So, وَلَا تَعْصُوا فِي مَعْرُوفِ You will not disobey in the matters of ma'roof. And also remember that where it has been said, وَلَا تَعْصُوا فِي مَعْرُوفِ It doesn't mean that you will disobey me when I command you to do munkar. Because it's not expected that the Prophet ﷺ would ever command them to do munkar. Everything that the Prophet ﷺ commanded them to do was what? Ma'roof. This is just like the statement of Allah, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اسْتَجِيبُوا لِلَّهِ وَلِلْرَسُولِ إِذَا دَعَاكُمْ لِمَا يُحِيكُمْ Does it mean that don't obey them, don't respond to them when they don't call you to that which gives you life? No. Everything that Allah and His Messenger call us to, there is life for us in that, there is benefit for us in that. So that means we are to respond to them, we are to obey them. And then, finally it has been said that whoever fulfills this among you, then his reward is with Allah. And whoever indulges in any of them, meaning whoever commits one of these prohibitions, then what will happen? He will be punished in this world and that will be an expiation for him. So what does it show to us? That hudud, the legal punishments, what are they? Expiation for sin. Legal punishments are what? Expiation for sin. And hudud or punishments in this world, they are of two types. First of all, uquba badaniyyah. Uquba badaniyya, such punishment that is inflicted on the badan, physical punishment. And this is basically the legal punishments which are in the form of hudud and ta'zirat. Are you familiar with these terms? We have done them in Surah An-Nur. Remember hudud, ta'zirat, right? So they are what? Uquba badaniyya. And these are given to a person by who? By other people. Isn't it so? Legal punishments are affected by who? By other people. Like for example, the qadi, the judge. Right, the leader. The second type is uquba, qalbiya and badaniya, but which is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Punishment that is where? Suffered by a person in his heart, in the form of depression, in the form of guilt, in the form of sadness, because of the crime that he has committed. And sometimes it's all the physical, but this punishment is coming from who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we can say that one is fi'lul khalq, and the other is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we learn, in Surah Al-Shura, Ayah 30, that وَمَا أَصَابَكُمْ مِنْ مُصِيبَةٍ فَبِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِيكُمْ That whatever disaster strikes you, it is because of what your hands have earned. Meaning any difficulty, any disaster that you suffer in your life, that is why, that is a consequence of your sins. So it's not a legal punishment, right, which was decided by the court. But what is it? It has come from who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Similarly, we learn in Surah Al-An'am, Ayah 65, قُلْ هُوَ الْقَادِرُ عَلَىٰ أَنْ يَبْعَثَ عَلَيْكُمْ عَذَابًا مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ أَوْ مِنْ تَحْتِ أَرْجُلِكُمْ أَوْ يَلْبِسَكُمْ شِيعًا وَيُذِيقَ بَعْضَكُمْ بَأْسَبَعًا So punishments come in various forms. Now we see here that the Prophet ﷺ said that whoever indulges in any one of these prohibitions, then he will be punished in this world. And that punishment will be what? A kafara. That will be an expiation, meaning that will wash away that sin. This is why we learn that difficulties, for example, in illness, what is it? What is it? Tahur. It's an expiation. And then the hadith continues that whoever indulges in any one of them and Allah conceals his sin, then his case is with Allah. If he wills, he can pardon him. And if he wills, he can punish him. What do we learn from this? That fa'alul ma'asi, a person who commits sin, he may be exposed and he may be concealed by Allah. Allah can expose his sin and Allah can also conceal his sin. But in either case, whether his sin is exposed or is concealed, is Allah able to inflict him? Yes. 
in this dunya as well as in the hereafter. This is why a person must always be afraid of Allah when he does something. And this is why he must always busy himself in what? Istighfar. Seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because we don't know what kind of punishment may come upon us. And we see that when a person commits something wrong, it is exposed. If not in this world, definitely where? In the hereafter. And we see that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conceals the sin of a person, but He Himself goes out and exposes it. He Himself goes and tells people about it. And over here, where it is mentioned that woman asaba min zalika shay'an summa satarahu Allahu fahuwa ilallah in sha'a afa anhu. If Allah wills, He can pardon it. But remember that from this, one sin is exempt. Meaning Allah will not pardon that except when a person does tawbah. Which one is that? Shirk billah. Because in Allah la yaghfiru an yushraka bihi wa yaghfiru ma duna dhalika liman yasha. Rabbad ibn Samit said that we swore allegiance to him for that. So this hadith, what is it telling us? That these were the ansar. And the ansar were those people who had iman and who also had amal. They pledged allegiance to what? That they would not do certain things and that they would do certain things. So they were people of iman and amal. And loving the people of iman and amal is what? It's a sign of iman. Anything you'd like to say before we continue? Some Arabs, not all of them, certain tribes, they would kill their children out of fear of poverty or hunger. Because life in the desert is very unpredictable. Especially the Bedouins. Why? You're living, all of a sudden there's a storm, your animals are dead, you were injured, you were bruised, you know, everything you had is gone. So they would fear hunger. They would fear poverty. And besides, in the desert, no rain, no food. So out of that fear, what would they do? They would kill their own children, that we cannot afford to have them. We cannot feed them, we cannot look after them. Similarly, some people would kill their daughters out of humiliation, out of embarrassment that we have a daughter because it was a sign of embarrassment. It was a means of embarrassment for a person to have a daughter. So this is why they were forbidden specifically from killing their children. There are multiple points that he's proving here and we see that staying away from all of these actions that are mentioned here is what? A part of iman. Because the Prophet ﷺ did not just tell them, okay, believe and that's sufficient. No. He said, Give me pledge of allegiance that you will not do such and such. Okay, so iman means doing certain things and leaving certain things. This is something that is mentioned in the Quran many, many times that when a person suffers a problem, any problem, then what is that? It's a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is for a number of reasons. It could be, first of all, that a person is patient so that he can get reward. Like for example, the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they were all tested. They all went through hardship. And we learn from a hadith that who does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala test? Those who are most beloved to him. So the prophets of Allah, his awliya, he tests them. Another reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inflicts difficulty on people is so that they realize what the wrong that they're doing. It's a result of their own shortcomings. So when a person is inflicted by some difficulty, he begins to reflect on his actions. What did I do? Did I do something wrong? Maybe this is a result of what I said, what I did. So this is what is being mentioned over here, that woman أَصَابَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ شَيْئًا ثُمَّ سَتْرَهُ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِنْ شَاءَ عَفَى عَنْهُ وَإِنْ شَاءَ عَقَبَهُ And before, that فَعُقِبَ فِي الدُّنْيَا That he will be punished in the dunya. So punishment comes in various forms. And of them is difficulties that a person suffers. I'm not saying that every difficulty that a person suffers is because he's very sinful. No. 
it is a means of washing away his sins and it's a means of elevating his ranks as well. Okay? That Bhutan has also been mentioned which shows that Bhutan is a big thing, is a big sin. I mean, they were required to promise that they were not going to do it. What does it show? Severity of this crime. That when a person does something, a big crime such as these mentioned over here, then for uqiba fi dunya, he is punished in the dunya. She's mentioning like for example, zina. It leads to many, you know, diseases such as AIDS and other type of STDs and they result in such severe illness affecting every organ of a person's body. So many people are affected by such diseases worldwide. So just imagine. And the effects are not just limited to that woman or that individual but also transmitted to their children sometimes. Ruining their entire lives. So these crimes, they have repercussions in the dunya. Not just in the akhirah, but even in the dunya. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows it here. So just as iman, good deeds, it will result in goodness in the dunya. Evil deeds will result in evil in the dunya as well. Let's continue. Bab. Min ad-deen al-firaru min al-fitan. Min ad-deen. Part of the deen, of the deen, is al-firar, fleeing. Min al-fitan, from trials. Fleeing from trials is a part of religion. Notice over here, the word deen has been used, not iman. I mentioned to you earlier that iman and Islam, they can be used interchangeably. Similarly, we see that iman and deen can also be used interchangeably. Why? Because deen is what? What is one's religion? It's his faith. It's his iman. Isn't it so? And we learned that iman has four components. Isn't it? The aqidatul qalb, the amalul qalb, the qawlul lisan, the amalul jawarih. And all of that together makes up your deen. Isn't it so? Because what is deen? Your way of life. What you speak, what you feel, what you say, what you do. What is that? Your life, your way of life. So this is why the word deen can also be used for iman. And we learned that inna deena indallahi islam. حدثنا عبد الله بن مسلمة عن مالك عن عبد الرحمن بن عبد الله بن عبد الرحمن بن أبي صعصعة عن أبيه عن أبي سعيد الخدري أنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يوشكو يوشكو it will be soon very soon يوشكو is from the root letters واو شين كاف and وشوكا is to be quick to hurry and when this word is followed by أن it means when something is at the verge of happening when something Almost happen. When something is about to happen. So yushiku, it will be very soon. Ayyakuna, that it will be. Very soon a time will come when ayyakuna khayra, the best of, malil muslimi, wealth of a Muslim. A time will come very soon when the best wealth of a believer, of a Muslim, will be what? Ghanamun. Will be sheep. The best Wealth that he can own is what? Sheep. يَتْبَعُ بِهَا He will follow with it, meaning he will go with it, meaning with his sheep. Where? شَعَفَ الْجِبَالِ شَعَف is the peak, the top of a mountain. So شَعَفَ الْجِبَالِ He will go up to the mountain tops with his sheep. وَمَوَاقِعَ الْقَطْرِ مَوَاقِعَ مَوَاقِعَ What is this? What kind of ism is this? Zarf, right? From waqa'a. So mawaqi' are places where something waqa'a, something happens, something occurs, something falls. 
So mawaqi'ah, places where? What falls? Al-Qatri, rain. So mountaintops, places where there's rain. In other words, he will be in the middle of valleys, which are the habitat and grounds of, for who? The grazing animals. Because the Arabs, they would go away from you know, the cities or the population, and, and where would they go? They would look for lands where their animals could eat. They would look for, you can say, valleys or such grounds where the animals could pasture. And such places are obviously away from people, away from population. You don't meet anybody, you don't speak to anybody. So he will go to Sha'af al-Jubali wa mawaqi' al-Qatri. Why? Yafirru bidinihi. Yafirru. He is running bidinihi with his religion. He is running with his religion from what? What is he trying to escape? Min al-fitan. The trials, the tests, the trials. So what do we learn in this hadith? That a time will come very soon, soon after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, when the best wealth that a person could own are what? Sheep. And he runs away with them to mountaintops, to places where rain falls, where his animals can pasture, and he can survive off of those sheep. He can get meat, he can get food from them, and he can live off of them. He doesn't need anything else. He can live there, he can survive there. And why is it that he would cut off from the people and go there? Because he wants to protect his religion. He wants to protect his iman. He wants to preserve his iman. What do we learn? That a person must strive to protect his iman. And in this hadith is encouragement to do that. How is there encouragement? That the best wealth the Muslim can own. The best wealth. This means that he's encouraged that at such a time, go for the sheep. Even if it means abandoning your house. Even if it means abandoning your store. Even if it means abandoning your business. Take those sheep. They're the best possession for you. And go with them. Go with them to a place where you would be alone, but do anything to protect your iman. Don't risk your faith. The question is, what is fitna? Fitna is anything that tempts a person to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because what is fitna? A temptation. It tempts a person to disobey Allah. That a person cannot resist but disobey Allah. And remember literally what is it? To expose gold or silver to fire, to heat it, to burn it, to shape it, to remold it, to clean it. And such temptations, they're very difficult. It's as though a person is going through this burning process literally. And temptations are in different forms. Sometimes they're in the form of certain things that a person likes a lot and he finds it very difficult to stay away from them. And if he stays with them, then what does it mean? He will end up disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why we learned that إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ fitna. Likewise, fitna also applies to persecution. That when a person is persecuted, he's being forced, he's being compelled to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to a point that it's become very difficult for him to resist it. So fitna can come various forms. Can come in various forms. But mainly what is fitna? Temptation. That which tempts a person to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these trials take different forms. Sometimes it is in the form of family issues. Sometimes it's in the form of political problems even. That can really affect a person's iman. Like for example, in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that very soon a time will come. And we learned that very soon after his death, the time did come. Remember what happened at the time of Uthman? There were people who became 
so extremist that they said kill him. Imagine killing a sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ. And they did that. They came and besieged his house. They created such fitna in Medina. Similarly, at the time of Ali anhu, this continued. Isn't it so? And the wars that took place between Ali anhu, Muawiyah anhu, and other companions as well, this was what? A big fitna. A big trial. A big test. A big temptation for people to disobey Allah. So what did the Prophet ﷺ advise us? That at these times, what should you do? Go away. Go away. Do anything to protect your iman. Do anything to protect your iman. And we learned that some companions at these times, they did not side with either of the two parties. They remained silent. They did not side with any of the two parties. They just stayed away. They did not take sides. Because if you study history, both had genuine reasons. Right? Both had genuine reasons. For example, Muawiyah he wanted revenge for Uthman anhu. On the other hand, Ali anhu, he wasn't able to take revenge immediately because given the situation in Medina. So if you study history, we see that both sides had valid reasons. And at these times, if you become biased against the other, then you end up committing great sins. Like for example, there were people who came out to be khawarij, who said that the companions are, have all become murtad. Billah, that they are not Muslim anymore. Just imagine. So, times of fitna, the more you get your hand into them, the more dirty you get. The more dirty your hand gets. So in these cases, what are we recommended to do? Stay away. Protect your iman. Save your iman. Preserve your iman. So in this hadith, we learn that a person must strive to protect his iman even before he should strive to protect his wealth. Even before he should strive to protect his wealth. Even if it means leaving your wealth, leave it. But don't risk your iman. Why? Because iman is the most precious and valuable thing that one can have. The most precious and valuable thing one can have. This is why he should prefer it over everything that he has. His family, his children, his wealth, his possessions, his business, anything. Nothing is as important as one's iman. Because on the day of judgment, what do we learn? There will be people who, even if they want to offer the entire earth's fill in gold as ransom, will it be accepted from them? No. But if a person has iman, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, and if it's of the tiniest amount even, eventually he will be taken out of hellfire. So iman is more valuable than the entire fill of earth in gold. That is the price of iman. So do anything to preserve it. Even if you have to leave the people and go live in mountaintops, surviving on sheep, surviving on just the basic necessities. This hadith is talking about major fitan, but even generally we see that when there is fitna, don't go there. Where there is, you know, for example, if you know that if you sit with so and so person, if you go to that gathering, you cannot resist doing wrong. So don't go then. If you know that if you go to a particular place, you'll end up committing sin and you know that, then don't go there. Save your iman. Protect your iman because your iman is more valuable than anything else. Anything else. Any example that you can think of where you have to protect your iman and give up this dunya. So for example, if a person's work is such that he knows that if he continues that particular work, that particular job, it's going to affect his deen. Why? Because he's constantly around certain type of people, you know, there who are doing certain type of things, 
And if he wants to succeed in that business, in that particular career, he's going to end up doing many wrong things. Like for example, there are people who have many opportunities to go into the corporate world, but they will stay away. Why? I'm not saying that nobody should go into that. Every person's level of iman is different. Every person's work type is different. Okay? But if a person is, you know, his position is such, his work is such that he can only excel if he ends up doing wrong things, then he should stay away. He should find something else to do. Like, for example, a person has an opportunity to open a store. So he's wondering, what store do I open? He thinks that a convenience store, given the location, given the opportunities, is a very good chance to succeed. But opening that would mean that he might have to sell lottery tickets. So he should stay away from that. Remember the, the Ashabul Kahf? What did they do? They left. And they went and took refuge in the cave, mountaintops. They stayed away because they wanted to protect their iman. I remember once uh, we were visiting um, Holland and um, there was a distant friend of ours who was taking us to um, the beach to show us the, you know, the windmills that they have over there, right? So we had limited time and he wanted to show them to us. So he took us there, he parked the car and he said, this is where you can go to see them. And we were like, you're not coming? He's like, no, I don't go. We're like, oh, strange, he doesn't go. So anyway, we went there and we're like, okay, let's turn back and go away. Because it was summer, it was the beach. So you can imagine what was happening over there. So he he didn't go there. He didn't even step out of the car. He said, I'm not going, you can go see. And we just went and we turned around and came back because we knew exactly why he didn't come. But, you know, that I still remember that. I remember I was very young at that time, but I still remember that because it's difficult to control yourself at these times, right? You feel like such an outcast and you feel that you cannot have fun because your religion is too restrictive. And then you look at other people and you think, oh, they're having so much fun. And look, she's going there and he's going there. If they can do it, why can't I do it? It's a big test. But at that time, remember that you're preserving your iman. And when you preserve your iman, you are preserving the most valuable, the most precious treasure that you have. More valuable than the earth's fill in gold. Remember, with all of this discussion that's going on, I'm not saying that you become a hermit, right? In the sense that you cut off, you say, I can't go to the grocery store. They sell haram over there, I might be tempted to buy something haram. <laughs> I can't go to the mall because there are people over there. I can't step out of the house because there it's summer. I can't step out of the house. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us certain rules as well. Isn't it so? That, for example, lower your gaze. Isn't it so? Umar when he passed by, Abdullah ibn Umar when there was music, what did he do? He put his fingers into his ears. He blocked it out. Isn't it so? So there are many things that you can do. Don't go into the store which has loud music. And there are certain stores which have a lot of music. Don't go at times when there is going to be a lot of music. Don't go at times when there will be a lot of people. So you can always, you know, do something or the other to fulfill your need and at the same time avoid the fitna. But it's important that you keep checking yourself again and again. Keep questioning yourself, keep checking yourself, and keep reminding yourself as well. So when you're going to places like the mall and, and coffee shops, et cetera, et cetera, you're dealing with something on a short-term basis. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with things like, let's say, at a workplace where it's on every single day basis and you're having to deal with it all the time, that can become detrimental, I think. Because yeah. 
Like I know for me, for instance, I was working and when I was working, I was constantly having to sit with gentlemen, constantly they're putting their hands out to shake hands, um, constantly, oh, we're going to the bar tonight, aren't you coming? Yes. You know, it, so being put in situations like that, uh, there was so much pressure, like you need to come to the bar, it's part of the department, we all have to go out. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't go. And, and they'd constantly be after me, like, and you know, there's stress and there's pressure on you because of that. And in the end, I was just like, you know what, it's a compromise of my dean, it's better to just leave and look for an Islamic school. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? That being in an an environment where it's a constant thing, I think really does start to have an effect. And this is why it's necessary that, for example, if there is a reason why a person has to do that particular work, I mean, he should make it clear to the people who are around him that this is something that I don't do. No questions asked. This is something I never do. You can't even tell me. Like, for example, my husband, he used to work at this particular place before, and whenever they had to order food for everybody at work, he would do it. Because he could order it from a halal place. And he would offer. And similarly, when everybody had to go out to eat, he would recommend places which are halal so that he could also go and eat. And he would make it very clear, no alcohol. And the times that he could not, you know, get it done according to his own way, he would stay away. And then people would not object. So there are times when you can make it clear to other people. They will accept, they will accommodate. But there are other times when they will not accommodate. When they will not accommodate, then you will not accommodate either. That at the same time, we also have to make sure that our iman is strong enough that we become an influence on others instead of them becoming an influence on us. And for that, you see, iman increases and decreases. So you have to be connected with the right people, right places, so that you keep checking yourself. Because it happens that when you meet someone after a long period of time and, and you know that they're righteous, then you know you see many mistakes in yourself. Isn't it so? Which on a daily basis you won't see. You love your children, you love your parents, your family, and you be tested to them. Yes. But if you love your deen the most and utmost, and obviously love Allah the most, then you will be able to deal with these with better. Yes, very true. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi How should you teach your kids, like if they are stuck in an environment where they go to Islamic school, but there are kids around them who can create a big fitna for them? So how should you, you should just remove your kids from that program or... How should you train your, your kids to overcome that fitna and protect their iman? Because your kids are not very, like, adults, you know. They I, I remember, like, for myself, I was barely in grade 7 or grade 8 that my mom started taking me to her classes. I had to go with her. Every Saturday when we were off from school, I had to go with her. No questions asked. It was something understood. You have to go and attend the Qur'an class. Summer comes any holidays, you have to go attend the Qur'an class. And the thing is that when you keep learning, then you feel responsible. Then whether your parents are there or not, you are concerned for yourself. So the solution to this is knowledge. And this is what we will learn in the next hadith, that knowledge is what increases a person's iman. So whether it's children or adults, it doesn't matter. Both need knowledge. And you may learn something once, But then when you go back to work, you go back to school, you tend to forget what you have learned. You need to revise again. Examples coming in my mind is of a rose and around it are the thorns as well. So your kids should learn how to filter. Like Mm -hmm. all the team, you can't be at guard on them. So they should learn living in that environment, whether it's Islamic school or whatever. And if there are bad examples around their shape, they have to get exposed to that and then they have to filter what is good and what is right. Because otherwise they will never learn. Just make a dua. Yes. Then how much can you protect them? 
Right? How much can you watch them? You have to eventually let go. And if you don't train them the proper way, then you're going to lose them. Which is like the social networking sites like Facebook and Twitter. You see that a lot of uh, people, they follow the wrong types of people. So on their walls or on their like, you know, the first page that they look at, they see a lot of news feeds that they shouldn't see, like swear words and people saying things that even though they're Muslim, they say things that uh, contradict your iman. And so... SubhanAllah, like, I know a lot of sisters who uh, would close down their Facebooks and Twitters and will make new accounts and only add specific types of people. But so if this is a fitting for like a lot of different people, then this is a way to go. Like just change it. Like yeah. Just delete everything. Again, we're not saying that cut off from everybody everything. Okay? Fix yourself. Be careful about who you follow, what you read, what you write. Because where there are many dangers, there are also many benefits. Like for example, Twitter. There are many bad things that you can read over there, but there are also many good things that you can read there. Isn't it? Very interesting things that you can read there. Where you can follow people who are, you know, wasting your time and wasting their time, you can also follow people who are sharing good things. Like for example, Sheikh Walid, he mentioned that if you have any questions, follow me on Twitter and ask me on Twitter, I will respond. And he does. He does. Right? So there are many good things and there are also many bad things. And this is not just limited to the internet, this includes everything. So this is why you have to have a constant check on yourself. Within the people during the time of fitna is uh, better than the one who goes and retreats to the mountains. Yeah, that hadith is about a person who lives amongst people and tolerates their bad behavior. That is also a kind of fitna. But again, you see that, okay, you're being patient with somebody. You go to them, you don't like them, you can tolerate them, you're patient with them. But then there comes a point where you feel that you're yelling back at them and you are being very harsh and severe and mean and rude. Then you can limit your interaction with them just to save yourself, just to save your deeds. Because one is that you're patient and the other is that you don't have that patience, then you're going down. Isn't it so? You're falling back. So at that time you have to save yourself. So give yourself a break, limit your interaction with them so that you can get your energy back, get your sabr back and then go back to them. Yes. Many times we attend family gatherings and uh, parties and we think that we're safe and secure just because we're not joining in on the festivities. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're front row and center watching and enjoying. And so when you think about it, it's not really protecting your iman. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, I learned from my own parents was when they first moved to the West, they kind of gave us like this speech that, you know, everything is kind of like privilege unless, uh, you know, you guys behave and everything. And if you don't, then, you know, it's, it's going to be taken away in the sense that you had to earn their trust. And um, not just that, like, I mean, like, you know, for example, my mom, she said it bluntly up front to all her kids. She's like, you know, if I ever found out you had a relationship or anything going on, <laughs> you know, it's done for you. We're going back. She kind of gave the kids a, like you, you tell them exactly what you expect mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what you don't expect from them. And also one other thing that I, I noticed with my dad was, that if we were ever found free, like in a room or anything, mashallah, we were like seven kids. But if he noticed that somebody was not taking a summer school or they were not active in some way in the dava or something, he would make a point to schedule us in something. Mm-hmm. So you make an alternative so that the mind is not, he, this is exactly his word. He said, keep the mind busy in something good. Like he didn't want you to be free. So you're wandering about and calling your friend and finding out, oh, where are you going? Okay, fine. I'll just follow. And the other thing is companionship again. Mm-hmm. If you want your kids not to be in fitna, 
then um, like you know make sure that their friends are good and uh, like if you're not sure about the friends as well like my mom what she used to do is to assess the friends she would invite them over multiple times until she's mm-hmm. comfortable yes. so basically she used to treat us like her treasure yes. like she wouldn't uh, let us go anywhere like she had so many rules and other people used to think my god like you know your, your parents are extreme but now that I'm a mom Subhanallah, I see that, you know, that's probably one of the best ways to do, like to check every aspect of your child and keep them busy and, yes. and not just avoid the fitna, but also protect them and give them alternatives. That's very true. And teach them yourself as well, right? Teach them the deen, teach them yourself, because if you don't teach them, you won't have a relationship with them. You have to have a strong relationship with your children so that they can share what's going on in their lives with you and that you can guide them throughout your lives. I remember somebody was telling me about she used to live uh, in a community where there were hardly any Muslims. And um, her son was very young at that time and they were walking in a place where a little child asked her mother, is that a black kid? Because they had never seen anybody but white. So you can imagine what kind of a community it was. And a time came when her son said, when are we going to have our Christmas tree? Because no Muslim community. And that's when they decided that that's it. We're not staying here, we're moving. So sometimes you have to take big steps to save your iman, to save your family's iman, to save your children's iman. And the thing is that you have to teach them yourself as well. You cannot just rely on the Islamic school. You cannot rely on some classes. You have to teach them yourself. You have to let them trust you. Just as you should trust them, they should be able to trust you as well. Have a strong relationship. The parents should teach. And I was noticing that someone in my in-laws family, so their daughter... She's only eight, but she does not have any relationship with her mom where she can say, you know, what is this or what is that? She'll always ask me why, because I'm teaching her Quran. So I was reading her story about Admiral Islam, and it said the word sin. And she said, what's a sin? Eight-year-old girl, she doesn't know what a sin is. And I was thinking, you know, the mother, if she had just, you know, taken out some time just to read her a book, her daughter might actually, you know, start asking her questions about the deed. But now she doesn't think of her mom as the person who she's going to go for religious questions. You know, I'm going to go to my aunt. I won't go to anybody. And I really compliment those parents who teach their kids the Qur'an reading themselves. Because it's such a difficult task. I remember we used to teach Qur'an at our house. Our brother would never read. Never. We had to send him somewhere else. And a lot of people can attest to this, that you will teach like the whole world's kids, but your own children. It's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. So you have to send them somewhere else. So those parents who do that, like, mashallah, may Allah protect them. That's amazing. So from this we learned that in order to protect your iman, sometimes you have to sacrifice your dunya. And in order to protect your iman, you have to have knowledge. So, Bab, Qawl al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama, Ana a'lamukum billah. Chapter, the saying of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I am the most knowledgeable of you about Allah. Ana a'lamukum. A'lamu. From ilm. A'lam, most knowing. So, most knowing of you is who? The Prophet ﷺ. Most knowing of who? Of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When a person has ilm of who? Of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he has, you can say, ma'rifah of Allah. Recognition of Allah. And when Bukhari says about that, that وَأَنَّ الْمَعْرِفَةَ And ma'rifah, recognition, knowledge of Allah. What is that? It's fi'lu al-qalb. It's an action of the heart. Why? لِقَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى Because of the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَلَكِنْ يُؤَاخِذُكُمْ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ That Allah will, will hold you accountable for what your hearts have acquired. Marifa or knowledge of Allah is an action of the heart. Why? How? 
because it is acquired through knowledge how does a person gain marifa how through knowledge it's an earning so it's an action of the heart and with regards to what the hearts acquire with regards to what the hearts gain what do we learn that we are accountable for it walakin yu'akhidukum bima kasabat qulubukum so what the hearts do whatever comes in the heart whatever a person feels in the heart the state of the heart then what is that it's an action of the heart whether it is fear or it is love or it is recognition or it is any other kind of emotion feeling what is it in reality an action of the heart intention even we learn in surah maida ayah 89 walakin yu'akhidukum bima aqadtumul ayman so imam bukhari is proving over here that ma'rifa knowledge recognition of allah is an action of the heart and and what's the point what's the reason of mentioning this here to establish the link between ilm and iman when a person gains knowledge then he will gain in his ma'rifa he will increase in his iman so there is a deep connection between ilm and iman more ilm more iman less ilm less iman حدثنا محمد بن سلام قال اخبرنا عبده عن هشام عن ابيه عن عائشه قالت شي سيد كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم اذا امرهم that whenever the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to instruct them instruct to the companions امرهم he would instruct them he would command them من الاعمال from the actions بما with that which يطيقون they were capable of Whenever he would command them to do something, he would command them to do that which they were capable of doing, which they could do easily. قالوا, they said, the companion said, Inna, indeed we, lasna, we are not, lasna. What is this? Fair naqis, right? Like laysa. So laysa, lasta, lasna. So we are not kahayatika, like you. We are not like you. Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We are not like you. Why? Because in Allah, indeed Allah, قَدْ غَفَرَ لَكَ He has in fact already forgiven you. For what? مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ زَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخَرَ Whatever has gone ahead of your shortcomings and whatever will happen later. Meaning Allah has forgiven you for any shortcoming of yours. You are already forgiven. So we are not like you. In other words, we want to do more. Give us some more hard, difficult actions to do. We have to do extra. You don't need to do extra because you are already forgiven. The Prophet ﷺ فَيَغْضَبُ So he became upset, he became angry. حَتَّى يُعْرَفُ الْغَضَبُ فِي وَجْهِهِ Until to the point that anger was visible on his face. ثُمَّ يَقُولُ And then he said, إِنَّ أَتْقَاكُمْ Indeed, the most taqee of you meaning the one who has the most taqwa among you wa a'lamakum and the one who has most knowledge of you billahi of allah so the one who has the most taqwa of allah and the one who has most knowledge of allah among you is who ana myself what do we learn in this hadith so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to instruct his followers his companions with easy actions actions that they were able to do instead of difficult ones why out of fear that they would not be able to remain consistent on those actions because something that you can do easily you're able to remain consistent on it but something that you do with difficulty what happens you do it one day 
you miss out on two other days. And then you try to do it again. But what do we learn? Which deeds are most beloved to Allah? Those which are most consistent. So this is the reason why the Prophet ﷺ would give them to do what they were able to do. And when the companions, they said that we are not like you, what did they mean by this statement? That you don't need to do much because you're already forgiven. We need to do more. We need to do more. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ became upset. Why did he become upset? Because of two reasons. Because first of all, by demanding more, they were in a way becoming extremists. They were leaving moderation. Because the Prophet ﷺ's way is the best way. It's the most moderate way. Remember that incident when one person said, I'm not going to get married. Another said, I'm not going to sleep at night. Another said, I'm going to fast continuously. The Prophet ﷺ became upset. Because the most moderate way is his way. And leaving that is extremism. So this is why he became upset. And secondly, he became upset because they said, we are not like you. You are already forgiven. In other words, what they were saying was that you are not doing much because you don't need to. If you think about it, if you analyze the statement even more, what does it mean? That you are not doing much because you don't need to. We need to do more than you. Do you see that? Do you see the problem over here? And this statement is very problematic because the Prophet ﷺ, he was the most obedient servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What's the evidence of that? Allah called him his abd in the Quran at several occasions. What does that show? That he was the most obedient servant of Allah. He was the best. He was the ideal abd of Allah. So he did the most. The way he used to fast, the way he used to pray, the way he would recite the Quran. Does anyone else do it like that? No. He was the most a'mal. A'mal from amal. Right? He was the most obedient. He performed the most actions. And why was that so? Because he was the most a'lam. Because he had the most knowledge as well. And the fact is that a person's amal is according to his his ilm and iman. A person's amal is according to his iman, which is according to his ilm. Ilm can only lead to amal when iman is in the middle. Because sometimes we see that knowledge is there, but amal is lacking. Why? Because that knowledge has not increased in iman. There are people who may have a lot of knowledge, but when will the amal come? When there is iman. Remember the story of Hiraqul? Iman was there. Amal did not come. Why? Because of lack of iman. So the Prophet ﷺ, he had the most amal. Why? Because he had the most iman. Why? Because he had the most knowledge. His iman was the strongest, therefore his amal was the best, and no one can exceed that level. And besides, we see that the Prophet ﷺ, because of this high status, because of the great favors of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon him, what did he do? He was even more obedient. Isn't it so? That this is why he said that Afala Akuna Abdun Shakura. So just because a person has a lot of knowledge doesn't mean he doesn't need to do a lot. No, he needs to do even more out of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the words of the Prophet ﷺ that, إِنَّ أَتْقَاكُمْ وَأَعْلَمَكُمْ بِاللَّهِ أَنَا There is no doubt in this fact. This is a reality. That the most knowing, the most knowledgeable of us, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is who? The Prophet ﷺ. And when such is the case, then he was also the strongest in Iman Billah. Because when a person is strong in his ma'rifah of Allah, then he is strong in his Iman. When he is strong in his Iman, he is strong in his Amal. But remember that true knowledge, true ma'rifah, 
true knowledge, true ma'rifah is not just based on information, but rather it is based on what? Mahabbah and ta'aleem. Love and respect. With knowledge, a person must have love and respect. With knowledge of Allah, a person must have love and respect for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if the love and respect are missing, then that knowledge will not increase in iman. Meaning, it will not translate into action. Because there are many people who may know a lot about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For example, about the sifat of Allah. They know, they're very knowledgeable of aqidah. About Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His actions, His names, His attributes, all the detailed, the intricate matters of aqidah, they're very well versed in that. However, if there is no mahabba, if there's no respect, then that knowledge will not benefit them. And sometimes it's scary because a person may be describing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as easily as he's describing, for example, a human being. When he comes across the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's dissecting them, he's analyzing them as if he's analyzing a human being. This is incorrect. Knowledge of Allah must be based on ta'zeem, must be based on love. Because if love and ta'zeem are missing, then iman will not increase. Taqwa will not increase. Khawf will not increase. And as a result, amal will not increase. And we see that it is said that man kana billahi a'raf kana minhu akhwaf. That whoever is most knowing of Allah, he is the most fearing of Allah. But this is only possible when knowledge is in the right way. One person came to Imam Malik and he asked about istiwa. He was asking about who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He must have had a lot of knowledge from before, which is why he was asking about what istiwa was. An ordinary person does not ask about what istiwa is. Isn't it so? He asked a question. And Imam Malik, when he was asked that question, he was overcome by fear. We learned that he bent his head down. He was sweating. And then he raised up his head and he gave the famous answer that we all know of. One was that man who had the confidence to ask very boldly, what is istiwa? Knowledge was there. And there was Imam Malik who when he was questioned, he began shivering, he began sweating. He wasn't able to speak. And then finally he gave the answer. There is a difference. There is knowledge in both. But what's the difference? One has mahabba and ta'zeem and the other does not have mahabba and ta'zeem. So knowledge can only lead to amal, can only lead to taqwa when it's based on love and respect. What do we learn? إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِذَا ذُكِرَ اللَّهُ وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ This has to be there. وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ The heart must feel the wajil. Because if it doesn't, then it will not help a person. It will not increase in a person's actions. It will not increase in a person's iman. And we all know about the people of the book, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes them, that مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ حُمِّلُوا التَّوْرَاتَ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَحْمِلُوهَا كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُوا أَسْفَارًا Like donkeys who are carrying heavy books, who don't benefit from those books. A donkey does not have any respect for those books. He doesn't have any association with them. He doesn't care for them. His heart is not attached to them. But when it comes to the knowledge of the deen, knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your heart must be involved. Because this ilm is what? It is deen. It is iman. And where is iman? In the heart. So your emotions have to be involved. If your emotions are not involved, it's dry. It's incomplete. It's not beneficial. It's not useful. So for knowledge 
to be useful for a person, there must be love and respect. And only then it will translate into action. So the Prophet ﷺ said that indeed the most knowledgeable of you, the most fearful of you of Allah is who? Myself. Why? Because he had the most love of Allah, the most fear of Allah, the most knowledge of Allah. And this is why his actions were the best as well. So if we want to improve in our actions, we must check the state of our hearts. Is there love? Is there fear? Because if that's missing, then there's a big problem. That we see there are people who have a lot of knowledge, but no love, no ta'aleem. As a result, their actions don't change. But on the other hand, there are people who have little knowledge, who are not great academics, but they have love, they have ta'aleem, and their actions change. Isn't it so? Like for example, it happens with many people. As they start learning the Qur'an, they say, oh, it's only a book, right? And they start treating the Qur'an like any other book. Mahabba is not there. Ta'zim is not there. They treat it like a book. They will put it down on the floor like any other book. They will use it as a, as a support like any other book. But there are other people who may not be studying the Qur'an like we are studying, but perhaps they have more respect. Which is why whenever the Qur'an is mentioned, they take it seriously. And we say, yeah, this is the verse, but that hadith, you know, it abrogates it, or this other verse abrogates it. And we treat Qur'an, the text of the Qur'an, like the text of any other book. Oh, such and such abrogates it, but no, the, the meaning of such and such is this, and so and so explain it as that. As if you're talking about, not the words of Allah, but something else. Mahabba, ta'aleem, have to be there. Don't treat this book, don't treat this knowledge like any other knowledge. Otherwise, it will not benefit you. And we want to benefit. We don't want to be like donkeys who are carrying books. That we need to go back to the intention again. The way that this book began. إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَّاتِ وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى Intention matters a lot. When they asked Prophet ﷺ that, you know, this is the state and you're forgiven. In a way, they probably had good intention, but they were going a little overboard with it, right? But these days, when we mention and we want to do extra, we want to do more sunnahs in our life, more nawafil and all, and people start criticizing, and you say that this is from Prophet and So there's a clear barrier that people want to draw, and they say, you know what, he was a messenger of Allah, you don't have to do all those things. Right, I'm thinking the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they had a completely different take on it. And with us now, this is like a dissociation. You say, okay, if it's not the messenger of Allah, then it's about Sahaba radiallahu anhum. You know, alladheena yatabiyuna bi'asan. And then you say, you know what, they were Sahaba. Don't try to be like them. And this happens when there's lack of love and ta'aleem for the deen. Because when there's love, then a person will do anything. He will even suffer difficulty. He will strive to become better. He will strive to improve. But when it's just knowledge, dry knowledge, just facts, just information, then he will say, yes, the Sahaba did it. However, you don't have to do it. If you do it, even this is acceptable. This is the bare minimum that you have to do, and it's okay for you. You know, then a person gets lost in the technicalities. Isn't it so? And he thinks that is sufficient. You cannot remove, you cannot separate emotion from the deen. You cannot separate it. Both go hand in hand. Love is a part of iman for granted like like a other textbook mm-hmm. we don't respect it as we should yeah but so. see it doesn't mean that you should limit your reading of the quran your study of the quran no if you're studying it the right way your ta'zim will definitely increase your respect will definitely increase just imagine the amount of knowledge that imam bukhari had but with that he also had mahabba and ta'zim which is why when he was writing this book he didn't just write 
all of the ahadith that he knew. No, he performed ghusl, nafl, istikhara. And then he wrote what he wrote. Mahabba and ta'aleem. That is what benefits a person. Same thing, the intention should not be that I do more than Prophet ﷺ. Yes. That again leads to bidda. Of course, very true. That we have to follow the way of the Prophet ﷺ and not go to extremes of doing more than him or less than what he commanded us to do. So less than him, people say, oh, he was a prophet, they were the companions, we can never reach that level. More than him, people say that, oh, he was a prophet, he's forgiven, we need to do more. And this is what leads to bidah, innovation. So even that is incorrect. So what is the only acceptable way? The way of the Prophet ﷺ. That ilm can be a hujjah for you yes. on the day of judgment if only it has mahabba and ta'aleem. Yes, very true. Like for example, one is to just study the Qur'an to know what's in the Qur'an. Okay, you have that knowledge, you have that information. But then, another level is that a person learns the Qur'an, memorizes, studies, so that he can understand. And then, if there is love, if there is mahabba, then he will recite it. He will apply it. He will reflect on it, not just in a formal setting, but even when he's alone. So, how does that come? A personal relationship. How does that develop? With mahabba and ta'aleem. Because when you love something, you are attached to it. When you're attached to it, that attachment is not just in the class, but it's also outside of the class. It's not just when the homework is given, but it's also otherwise. It's not for the duration of the course, but it's also afterwards. Some people, they're just content with respect and love and no knowledge. Respect and love and knowledge and amal. All three are necessary. See many people, they are able to carry a very intellectual conversation with regards to deen, and they'll come off as very knowledgeable. But that practice isn't there because they have no love and respect for that knowledge. comes across so clearly because you know he's upset with them, but he's not saying, "Oh, you are doing this, or you are saying this." He says, it just talks about himself. I fear Allah more, and yeah. I. Anyone in the hadith before yes. that, um, number 18, when he was taking the Pledge of Aqaba from the Ansar, and there were very few Ansar, and at that time there were very few believers, but he was very upfront with them, and he said, yes. look, you'll get the reward from Allah and the punishment from Allah. So then you're giving the pledge to me, but the reward and the punishment will be from yes. Allah. So it's so beautiful. Yes. Really the personality of the Prophet ﷺ is coming to light here, that how the people said something that made him upset, the anger was visible on his face, but he was not harsh in his response. Just look at the statement, إِنَّ أَتْقَاكُمْ وَأَعْلَمَكُمْ بِاللَّهِ أَنَا Sufficient. And you, you got a whole big lesson in that. سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمْ وَبِحَمْدِكَ نَشَدُ وَاللَّا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنْتَ نَسْتَغْفِرُكَ وَنَتُوبُ لَيْكَ السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته